podcast. This is the podcast which looks at the ways that people have changed things throughout history in however small or astronomical a way that that might have been. Each week we chat about a different figure or group, how history might have been different without them and how they fit into the modern day. And today I'm delighted to welcome back my co-host Billy Brake. It is fantastic to be back. I missed being here. As wonderful as job as Tom did being co-host. Permanent guest. Permanent guest, yes. It is fantastic to be back and also to be joined again by Dan Hagarth, who you may remember last from the Muhammad Ali episode. So who are we talking about today, Dan? Well, today we are looking at Tupac Shakur, um, who was born June 16th, 1971, in New York City, is a, was a rapper and actor, considered one of the finest and most important hip-hop musicians of all time, and a definitive figure in the West Coast hip-hop movement after he moved to California. And also has good conspiracy theories about him still being alive. Well, yes, oh. so is that. There are those. Yeah. Not that that's important, because, you know, they're probably full of shit, but... Well, if they're right, then that... Who doesn't love a conspiracy? Screws the whole point of us talking about him, because then yeah. he wouldn't be dead. Yeah. Well, do they well, have to be I mean, dead? Yeah. Well, two of, the be- the- two of the Beatles aren't dead. Well, but the Beatles are dead, aren't well, they? The Beatles is an idea is dead, isn't yeah. it? That's a, yeah. Okay, anyways... We go off track. But yeah, well, Tupac is presumed dead. Well, he's not presumed dead, he's confirmed dead. <laughs> he died in 1996, but uh, in his 25 years on this earth, became one of the most important figures in... So young. Um, yeah, ridiculously young. But became one of the most important figures in rap history. Recorded four studio albums, three, you could probably argue, considered three of the finest of all time, and just defined an era of hip-hop music. What's your favourite song of his? Oh, that is a question. You could go, I mean, it's difficult what you want to look at because there's so much of his music that's so important socially. You've got tracks like Changes, where he mm. speaks about how he wants the world to be. But then there's just brilliant sort of music like California Love, which I think is one of the greatest summer mm. songs of all time. I have a favourite album of his, which was his final album, All Eyes On yeah. Me. Which, yeah. the titular song from that album is probably my favourite. Um, yeah. Eyes of the Z, right? Yeah. yeah, and the first sort of half of that album, it's a really long album, it's just stunning. Some of the best hip-hop I think you'll ever... Or hip-hop or rap you'll ever listen to. Um, cool. But yeah, he is... So what was it that you were wanting to focus on when thinking about his impact on the world? Well, I saw a quote from 50 Cent who said that every rapper who grew up in the 90s owes something to Tupac, mm-hmm. which I think is a very good indication of how important he was because if you sort of put him in a historical context, you've got hip-hop emerging in New York City... In the 70s, which is about the time Tupac was born, but then he obviously moved out. He moved out to the West Coast, and hip hop also had made its way out to the West Coast amid sort of social turmoil. You had sort of LA riots and you had police brutality, mm-hmm. and from that, groups like NWA and rappers like Ice Cube popped up, taking this really sort of fierce anti-establishment position. Yeah, and then Tupac comes like sort of NWA appear late 80s. Tupac's first music sort of released about 1990. And he maintains that sort of social commentary that sort of steps away from the sort of gangster, steps a bit away from the sort of gangster rap and puts far more social, emotional issues into yeah. a pre-existing gangster rap sound, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, actually, that sort of West Coast sound, even as we hear it today through um, rappers like Kendrick Lamar, owes a huge amount to Tupac and how he took a sound and took it further, really. Yeah, the fact that he did that was so moulded, wasn't it, by his background. He was brought up by parents who were really, really involved in the Black Panther movement, family all around him involved in the Black Liberation Army. Mm. I think his parents both were um, convicted and arrested at various points. So this awareness that he had to fight through his music as well 
definitely yeah. more by that as well, right? Yeah, hugely. It's it's far more than just protest music. Yeah. It's almost educating a wider public on the struggles yeah. of being, you know, African American. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's so it's, interesting. Yeah. There's an interesting interview with him where he said, you know, he's got thousands and thousands of people and audiences listening to him and doing what he wants. Yeah. But he makes it that they're African American, they're Latino, they're yeah. white. And so like you were saying, it's not just African-American people he's getting to, it's a whole audience. He's taking it from a singular struggle to like showing the world or showing the country particularly what's happening with his music. Yeah. So the interview that I'm going to touch on in my little section was from 1994 and it was a BET interview or a BET interview with this guy called Ed Gordon. It's the widest name ever, Ed Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Ed Gordon said to him, you know, what do you say to people who say that you're a bit of a sellout and you're kind of being pimped out by the sales execs? The people who are selling your brand are benefiting from the fact that you come from this oppressed section of society but you're really rich so how are you trying to straddle those two things are they pimping you out and he gives the best answer ever which is that firstly who's not being pimped out Hmm. everyone's being pimped out whether you work nine to five you work for yourself you're being pimped out that's not the crime what matters is whether how long you let yourself be pimped out also Let's look at my situation. Am I really being the one who's pimped out? I think actually the kids who are being pimped out are the white kids who go home at the end of the day and sing my songs to their white middle class parents. I'm the one who's writing their future. I'm the one who's writing their curriculum. So I think actually I'm pimping them <laughs> out. I know that's amazing. It's, that's also an argument that will not go away in hip hop. Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly is on the idea of sort of black music being exploited or what people expect of a successful black person. That's an argument that NWA faced throughout and sort of split them apart. You know, they had Jerry Heller, who was their white manager, who some of them thought were exploiting them. And they were rapping about the realities of being black in LA, but it was making white people successful. So it, it, that is a really interesting idea at the heart of almost all of mm. black mm. expression in America, mm. really, and predominantly hip hop, I'd mm. say, yeah. Going back to the music, Dan, you know, as our resident hip-hop expert, I'd say, amongst <laughs> the... Yeah, amongst why? why are you... Well, sorry, well, well, I'm well, sorry. Well, hopping well, on the old well, question there. Um, compared to the music that NWA was producing, yeah. and then you look at what Tupac released, is the shift between those two anywhere near as similar to the shift that was seen since Tupac to what we have now? Ooh, it's a very good question. Um, I think you. if you take 90s hip-hop, 80s, 90s hip-hop as a sort of collective... You have a sort of divide between more soulful, jazzy hip-hop, as you'd get most predominantly on the East Coast in New York, groups like Tribe Called Quest and Jungle Brothers. But then you've also got uh, this really angry rap on the West Coast around the time Mm. of the the riots. Tupac, certainly a lot of his music fits into the NWA style of protest and, and fighting oppression, but I think almost it's a stylistic point that's different. I'd say Tupac has quite a distinctive thing that a lot of people have copied, which is you have quite a soft open. You let the song build up and then a beat comes in and then he lead, leaves it a little and then his flow comes in and it goes mm, 100 right, miles sure. an hour. And you sort of see that in Jay-Z's 90s music, so you began to see that in Brooklyn rap as well. But I, I think actually the best point of comparison and is one that sort of defined that era was Biggie Smalls and Tupac. And if you... Yeah. Obviously there's a lot of similarities in their music, there's similar concepts and themes, but Biggie's is a lot more soulful and New York and, and jazzy and... Tupac's is a bit more gritty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, compared with now, there's a legacy of that in rappers like Kendrick Lamar, but we've moved a long way from hip hop and rap to yeah. the sort of pop rap we get now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The mumble. So, so I think there's yeah. so many more similarities between people of that era, Jay Z, Biggie, 
NWA and Tupac than there are with, say, Tupac and modern rappers, you know. There are a few who are still of that ilk, but I think you would package up your 80s, 90s style as Tupac would would have more in common with NWA. Yeah, I guess it's like sort of 60s, 70s rock is compared to even 2000s rock is drastically different. Yeah, sure. Great. Thank you, Dan, very much. Billy, you're up next, aren't you? What did you want to chat about? Yeah, so I thought, I mean, it kind of flows on nicely what we're talking about, you know, resistance to oppression and everything that Tupac's music kind of stood for. So on from that was kind of the concept of thug and thug life. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure we've all heard this quote, I didn't choose a thug life, the thug life chose me. No idea that that was Tupac. Yeah, right, so that's Tupac. And you might have seen that photo of he has a tears tattoos of thug life across his his thing, um, where the eye of life is a bullet. Oh, right. So that tattoo stands for the hate you give little infants fucks everyone, <laughs> which kind of encapsulates, you know, what he's trying to talk about in his mm. music. It's this cyclical nature of oppression mm. and, you know, marginalization of the African American community, which in LA as well is particularly rife. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's you know, America, as I say every week, pretty much. America fucking sucks. <laughs> but particularly i think at that time rename this podcast (laughs) literally apart from you Um, saying i love you that's the that's the one thing said the most so when he started talking about the meaning of being a thug and the culture behind it he said when i'm saying thug i'm not meaning a criminal i mean the underdog the person who for nothing succeeds he's a thug because he overcame all obstacles Mm. which is kind of like goes back to what you were saying dan and it's fighting the fact that America doesn't give them anything, you know, just because someone has a gun mm. doesn't mean that, I think that's, Anna, that's what yeah, you were yeah. saying just before. So it's that kind of concept of we're not given anything and the system that you put us in with drugs and violence and everything in between mm. is keeping us in this self-repeating yeah, cycle. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that we get criminalised for trying to help yeah. ourselves yes, exactly, is yeah. so screwed. And I think it's interesting how we kind of, he rejected the whitest thing in the world, the Oxford Dictionary. Definition yeah. of thug is a violent person, especially a criminal. And if you kind of overanalyze as a history student is want to do, you know, the thing like a dictionary is such an institutional thing. Yeah. So to reject that and redefine it yeah. and then employ it in your in your lyrics and your whole life is a massive shift to what because yeah. now a thug is just an underdog victim of the system who's sort of trying to fight it, not a criminal yeah. or a violent you person. You see it in a track of his called Thug's Mansion, yeah. which is his it's almost like the idea of an afterlife for prominent African-Americans. Well, obviously, his definition of thug is not, as we'd almost see in Britain, as a fighter, a brawler, uh, someone a ne'er-do-well, if you wish. It is a wider term of someone who's had to battle oppression, and it is one of his greatest songs, and it yeah. encapsulates his sort of worldview of how what they have on Earth, his community, what they have on Earth, is so relentlessly mm. terrible mm. that there better be a better place afterwards mm. where he can go and join Martin Luther King mm. and Malcolm X and they can have what they've worked mm. for. And Thug's Mansion? Yeah. Okay. And it, it's a brilliant piece of music um, from his first album. I There's think. also another, a good song, one of his better songs, which has some of the most emotionally wrenching lyrics I've ever heard, is Brenda's Got a Baby, okay. which is about a, you know an African-American child who's molested by a cousin mm. and then... She goes on, like, has this kid, goes to prostitution. Mm. It's it's a great song. The fact that he focuses on a child and that song is the crux of this yeah, tattoo. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, what, you're doing this to children. Yeah, it's yeah. not just that you're doing this to adults in the system. You're doing it to children. You're keeping them down. But then Thug kind of began to encapsulate the whole Tupac sort of iconicism in a way. Uh, and he, he started a group called Thug Life. And of his newfound platform, he said, 
I got a chance to speak to young black males all over the country about this new idea called Thug Life, which is a new kind of black power. Mm, cool. But the violence of the phrase is also really interesting, you know, the fact that it fucks. That whole, that word is really interesting. There's a film called The Hate You Give, based on a book of the same name. Yeah, I've heard of that. And the director, there's a really, there's an interesting New York Times interview with him. To keep the rating, George Tillman said they could only use, I think you can only use the word fuck once. Really? To keep it PG-13. Yeah, so, you're allowed one. Yeah, yeah. so he really? had to be like, fuck, when, when do I use this? When? When and so they had to use the word Fs. And he, was, he just said it doesn't do the same. The hate you give mm. Fs everywhere. It doesn't make, you know. So I think the violence of the phrase he chose with Thug Life and, and made a meaning behind that is kind of similar to the violence that he's capturing in his, in his lyrics. And yeah, that, you know, Thug, the word is comes from the thuggy cult in India which is assassins which kind of the violent connotations to it kind of underscore again why Tupac probably chose it oh right I didn't know that that's cool yeah I mean I don't, I don't I'm, I'm just theorising obviously the but thuggy cult yeah thuggy T-U-G-G-E-E but then in the modern day, it's interesting, there's been a lot of debate as to whether th the word thug has replaced the N-word mm -hmm. because of the media often labelled African-American thugs. Even Obama did this. You know, when, when Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore, right. his spine was crushed by like six police officers oh. and yet another. And I think even Obama called, referred to, because um, there were riots, and then he said you know, thugs. These thugs, yeah. Yeah. And then it's still really prevalent in, in the music industry today. You know, there's thug life, bone thugs in harmony. Mm. Even Taylor Swift has a song called Thug Story yeah. with T-Pain. Oh, right. Yeah, so I think it's nice that it's sort of been maintained. It's kind of, it's lost some of its, its meaning to what he yeah. had initially brought forward. But it is interesting to see how it still exists in the music industry today and how it's kind of, you know, pervaded into other mm. forms of media. Certainly in this country, it just as a word essentially means a young man more than likely, yeah. Yeah. who's going to cause violence yeah. yes. and nothing beyond that. And it's, yeah. uh, that's really interesting that I think most people in this country wouldn't think of its associations with black culture was, in America. Yeah. Um, You've literally just said exactly what I was going to say. Um, yeah. For us, it's just a throwaway word yeah. Yeah. for a young troublemaker. Yeah. Um, I guess words like that always have, always end up connoting, denoting a particular group, mm. right? So even mm. the word, so the synonym that I thought of when you said thug was yob, and even yeah. that, or, you know, chav has been a word. It's really, yeah. really, really linked with the working class and, like, white working class men. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to me that I hadn't thought of thug as having that same, yeah. you know, link with a particular group, specifically in this circumstance, yeah. African-Americans. It's also interesting to think how now the word chav is sort of a derogatory word. Yeah. And I guess thug, thug might have that similar impact yeah. in the States now the yeah. way it's being used. Well, maybe... no, one, no one really says, well... I mean, At here least in, no in the middle thug. class, you wouldn't say chav anymore because it's no, seen yeah. as an incredibly offensive thing to one say. One time, at, um, Anna and I went to Edinburgh at the same time. We didn't <laughs> meet there, but we overlapped. Shout out to Cobby Thomas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. But the one, when we were there one night, a club had a chav night. Oh, that Jesus is absolutely you know horrendous. Yeah, Why I, when not? I, Where are you at? <laughs> when I was at university, there were a lot of chav fiends, socials. Terrible. And, yeah, that's just part of a wider, terrible culture, isn't it? Anyways, that is my section, and I think you are up with a fascinating interview for us. Really interesting. Thank you, Bill. So when I was thinking about what to talk about, I kind of actually already realised that you guys would cover, and much better than I could, the hip-hop and music elements of it. Well, that was all done. Oh, <laughs> stop. <laughs> He's blushing. He actually is now. Yeah. So instead, I spent my morning watching 
the bet or the BET interview uh, that was in 1994 with Ed Gordon. And honestly, if you've got 20 minutes, it was just the best bits from it. If you've got 20 minutes, would really recommend it. Have either of you seen no. any bits from I've it? I've seen parts. I mean, yeah. yeah, I might have seen it without. No, I'd assume I haven't. Yeah, it's, well, so a lot of the quotes that you read on like the Wikipedia page or other articles, or whatever, a lot of them come from this interview, and it's been branded a really iconic and slightly bizarre interview, also, and his ability to back questions away and the questions are really focused on trying to get to know who Tupac actually is as a person mm. and whether he's two-faced and whether he you know what he actually thinks he's standing for and his ability his way with words and his ability to frame the question to something completely new is honestly quite awe-inspiring and so I wanted to for that reason just kind of pick up on the um, the topics that he talks about a bit, there are kind of two or three major ones, which I just thought were a really interesting way of seeing into what his motivations were mm. and what he thought he was doing and achieving. And So it seems like he thought he closed the interview by saying, goes back to what you guys were saying before, that he thought he was doing God's work through music he kind of was doing for the African-American, the black community in America, what, say, missionaries do when they go into... Mm. Uh, you know, either completely non-religious places or what the preacher does for the middle class in church on Sunday or whatever. He said, I am doing God's work for these people, what they do for those people, because no one else is going to do it for us. So that's what I see my role as, that's what I see my job. One of the things I wanted to pick up on that he talks a lot about and that he's clearly really concerned about is kind of this idea of self-protection. So he speaks a lot about carrying knives, carrying guns, how... If you're a black man and you are caught carrying a knife, caught carrying a gun, you're immediately criminalised. Mm -hmm. And he feels incredibly passionate about the fact that, for some reason, if you're more likely than not a white man in a police outfit and you've got mace spray tucked into your belt and you've yeah. got a raid, what are these things called? You know, like those raid shields riot and you've shield. got yeah, right, right, just raid shield. You've got a riot shield and you've got a gun and a knife and whatever. You're you're you you stand for protection in in the US and people hail you as the, the you institution. Know, yeah, yeah, protector of order and all of that. But the minute you don't have a uniform on, you're doing it for the same reason. You're doing yeah. it to protect yourself against villains and you're doing it to protect yourself against whatever someone might throw at you. You're a criminal. Yeah. And if you're black, you're trying to protect yourself against the same people, but just because you're black, people think you're that guy's friend even mm. though you're protecting yourself against him because you're black you belong to the same community so you know you're yeah. kind of one and the same I guess it's kind of a way of not like like sort of drawing it down to its lowest common denominator yeah. just to clump people together it's finding anything that might work to be like oh and so you're the same definitely definitely right. and something that I found really interesting I guess you know we're all sat around this microphone being journalists like we're training as mm. journalists or have trained as journalists whatever so he picks up a lot on also the press and the media and how the press and the media present it. So he said, you know, the press and the media want to make us all think that a black man arming themselves is a crime, but he says it's actually, it's about survival. Direct quote, he says, we have to be honest with ourselves about the tools that we use to survive. Why is a black life any more recuperable than a white life? We know that they don't put as much security in the ghetto as they do in the white community. So for me to be out here, and he means in his position as a rapper, as yeah. someone who's reaching into people's homes, for me to do that and say, put your guns down, don't, you know, don't do any violence, that's really hypocritical. If I didn't talk about violence, everyone would act as though the violence wasn't there. And then he says, which I thought was so interesting, we as rappers bought that violence that we see on the streets and put it into our records. And after four or five years, people are finally starting to see it because of all the statistics that's going on in the streets. And if we stopped talking about it, then there wouldn't be any statistics. And when they stopped taking statistics, then we'd be killing each other on the streets and white people wouldn't care anymore. So this is a big theme of the song Changes, where he's almost making a plea to the 
wider African-American community almost saying, we've got to come together. We are, as a community, are seen as one community by mm. the rest of America. Mm. And if any change is going to happen, we have to be one and unified and almost harmonious. Mm. And it's quite interesting that sort of, as he says himself there, that, you know, his music is caught up in his surroundings. Mm. You yeah. know, he was a huge part of the West Coast, East Coast sort of culture war, you know, the, the rivalry in, in American rap. And that went beyond just battle raps. That was a, a violent thing. And when Tupac died, people, you know, certain people believed that Biggie and the East Coast were responsible for it. So, you know, he's he's caught up in so many conflicts. Yeah. Be it within rap, yeah. within the African-American community, or as the white American yeah, against black yeah, America, yeah, yeah. that there's, there's this yeah. constant narrative of conflict yeah. through his life, which... You almost you see progress through his music through an idea of protection and then harmony and yeah. how things would change in the future. Well, what was the song where he was basically saying to the notorious B.I.G. B.I.G. Not the notorious Big. <laughs> Until I was seventeen, I said McHammer. What? Oh, really? Oh, that's terrible. It's embarrassing. That Scottish that, DJ. Maybe I was a bit younger. Maybe fourteen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> McHammer, MC's lesser-known Glaswegian cousin. <laughs> McHammer. <laughs> Welcome, my McHammer. What was the song where he basically was like to the notorious B.I.G. Like I've, you know, been banging your oh, wife. Oh God, the. Um... And that was just a massive fu to him. Well, yeah. So there's that. There's that. There's that. I can't remember the name of the song, but there's a running sort of battle rap between yeah. those two. Fun it it gets really quite fierce. Well, going to what you just said before about constant conflict in all areas of his life. One thing that I've, I really enjoyed about this interview that I thought this guy, Ed Gordon, did really well. Oh, also, you said it's a really white name. The guy's not actually white. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's not actually white. I guess also, like, Chuck Berry is a very white-sounding name. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Sorry, Ed Gordon and Chuck Berry. <laughs> he kind of picks up loads on this, you know, what about, what do you what do you say to people who think that you're just really, really scary, basically, and you've, you've presented and you've built up this image of yourself as really tough and, you know, no one should mess with you and, and all of this lot. And he says, uh, very roughly, I can't find the quote now, but he said, um, you know, I know that I have compassion. I know that I have logical thought and I have understanding and I can speak to people. So when people come up to me, they have this expectation that I should show them I'm not a threat and I'm not scary. That's not my job. It's not my job to show that I'm not a threat. I know I'm not a threat. I'm not a threat. I'm only a threat if you're going to be a threat to me. And so he's got this really... I don't know, his self-assurance, and during the interview, he was only 23 as well, his self-assurance and his ability to articulate himself, and clearly he's a thinker, like, well, at the time that he spent in prison, because he was in prison for nine months for sexual assault, wasn't he? Yeah. And he apparently became really influenced by Machiavelli, the prince, and he was really influenced by that idea of, you know, you've got to grab your enemy and destroy them before, in whatever means yeah. possible before they can do the same thing to you. So it's kind of this conflict between his clear compassion, oh, I don't know, his clear sensitivity and his, the deep amount of thought that he's put into everything that he says and he does. But you, sort of more widely political, if you look at his music, there's a, there's a huge importance on looking after the most vulnerable in society. Mm. There's this huge idea of compassion in his music. And I really like that idea of it's not up to him to prove he's not a threat. Yeah. And that is such a huge political idea that we see mm. even now that you know yeah you look at disproportionate numbers of stop and search yeah. on you know young black people we have this idea this assumption of what a black person is yeah. that's is so prevalent in society that no it, of course it's not up to black people to prove they're not a threat because that relies on the racist assumption that they are yeah. a threat yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's that sort of staggering 
racial yeah. politics that still exists today and that is still such a huge part of yeah. hip-hop you even see it in UK hip-hop now you see it in grime but you know Stormzy and Dave are so political yeah. because they're living in a society yeah. where they have to prove that they're not a criminal yeah and this this, is, this yeah. has lasted which for as long as we know which isn't helped by them like we spoke about the American media a few like a moment ago but the UK media is getting so, so yeah, yeah, bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at things like the sun and whatever. Yeah, mad. So yeah, so that was it really. I know it's not a kind of a, an obvious thing about his impact, but I, I don't know, I just, he said so many interesting yeah. things in the interview. I just wanted to talk about that specifically. Well, I think looking at the way he carries himself is in interviews, because he died so young, he only died at 25. Yeah. Looking at a, at a big interview like that is a great yeah. way to try and, you know, extrapolate how he, thought and viewed yeah. the world. Well, as a life, it's just cut so short. Yeah. He had a yeah. fledgling acting career. Where yeah, he, in, he did. He was in John Singleton's film, Poetic Justice. Yeah. John Singleton had basically turned Ice Cube from a rapper into a rapper and an actor. Yeah. And he was in the process of doing it with Tupac. Yeah. And he also did jazz and ballet. Yeah, he, he is. Shakespeare. A true sort a of... poet. Yeah, a Amazing. real artist. Jack of all trades. Yeah. yeah. Master, Master of many. Master of many, yeah. Um, that's cool that you're so... I didn't know Dan. It's cool that you're yeah. so into him. You know what I'm saying? Oh, about. yeah, like him and that sort of 90s era is my favourite era. Because when we said to you on the on the WhatsApp chat, do you want to do Tupac next week? Dan's response was, oh God, I would absolutely love this. Yeah. Which I thought was well, so I knew because Dan did it. I know that Dan did a hip-hop show at university. Oh, that's on student A tribe radio, with yeah. guests? A tribe plus guests, oh, we were called. Yeah, close. we did that for a whole year, which was just fantastic. I really enjoyed doing yeah. So how do we think the world would be different if I, he hadn't existed? That's a really, I think he's a really interesting one for that because he's not as obviously figure like you know the Thatcher one I was on there's a very yeah. clear brand of economics that sure. she championed yeah but with Tupac you almost you have to look at the art form and I think yeah the quote I said earlier is correct any rapper owes so much yeah. to Tupac be it stylistically the sound the the beat coming in first followed by a really rapid flow you see in Jay-Z you see in so many rappers so I think not only did he bring social issues in but he actually musically yeah. changed yeah. the genre yeah. the persona of I think the persona he had as Tupac and this almost prophet-like figure and a voice for a whole group of people. You know, obviously you had NWA being really outspoken before that, things like fuck the police and stuff. Mm. But him, you know, he kind of continued that tradition mm. Mm. and I think set a benchmark for other rappers mm. to follow. Yeah, yeah, I think he defined almost what a rapper can be mm. socially yeah. And, yeah. and the weight they can carry. And you see that reflected today with, I think, predominantly Kendrick Lamar who is mm. the finest rapper of our era, I think. Yeah. To Pimp a Butterfly, stylistically and thematically, owes tons to Tupac Shakur. Yeah. For me personally also, I will never support the fact that America lets anyone walk around with a gun, but it was the first time I'd read and heard someone mm. be like, you guys are idiots for thinking it's as simple as that. And yeah. actually being like, it's so simplistic to preach non-violence. And I, that, I, found that, I did find that quite humbling because I was like, yeah, me and my little white middle class elite over here in the UK thinking, oh, all these people in America carry guns. I don't know, I, I found that really interesting and nuanced approach to the, yeah. the an enormously political issue. It makes you think about the difference between like, you know, an African-American who, who kind of has to carry a gun mm. in like half gang down the yeah. leg compared to some yeah. hick in West Virginia who just yeah, got like seven shotguns, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is yeah. How about 2020 Tupac? I think he would really struggle musically to fit in. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't got as much understanding of, of hip hop and rap as Dan does. But from my limited exposure and experience and you know, the small amount I do listen to, the music he was producing is so much better than it is now. 
but it seems very different to me and I don't know how well it would fit in and I think there are, there are figures you can compare him with because if you look at Jay-Z in the 90s who's someone I kept mentioning but he was pure gangster rap and opulent braggadocio yeah. rap which Tupac isn't really but sound wise they're quite similar and Jay-Z's music has changed because he's a man in his 40s now he's been very successful but his latest yeah. album 444 was very reflective yeah, and softened a bit whereas I, I think I think with Tupac I think there's still that political yeah. energy energy and almost content for him to write about yeah. Whereas now I think he'd almost, I think him and Dr. Dre could be one of the most incredible yeah. producing combinations yeah. you could ask for. There are plenty of rappers I think Tupac could have helped yeah. in the way that Dr. Dre does, in the way that a lot of you know 90s rappers like Snoop Dogg are now mm. working with Anderson Pack and people. Yeah. So I, I think, don't know. I think, I think he'd be around. I don't think he'd be making the huge political albums that he was in the 90s. Yeah. But I think he'd still be, a, even on a production-wise, a huge part of... It's interesting, yeah. like, rap, yeah. rap is one of those genres that kind of lends itself to the artist to evolving. Where it's something like rock. We spoke about the Beatles and you know, way back when. With you know, more like band-esque music, that it's kind of hard to evolve because you're set in your ways. But I think rap, because it's an individual, you can yeah. change a bit more, as you said Jay-Z has. And yeah, that's really it's, interesting. It's a collection point. of poems, isn't it, yeah. essentially? And it reflects... Was it rhythm and poetry? Yeah. Is that meant to be the it's how yeah. you've how you've how you yourself have changed, but how what around so, you've I guess changed. I actually what it stands for. <laughs> I like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think he'd be part of that sort of group of dad rappers that, that yeah. Jay Z and Dr Dre are a huge part of these days. Yeah. Cracking, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on. It's As been a joy to have you back. I can't thank we you. haven't yeah, had you no, on for so many weeks. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Keep on following us on Twitter and listening to all yeah. our episodes. Thank you so much for listening to this. And we will see you next week. And I love you.